Theodore was born in 1519 to the parents to parents in the lower nobility of France. He would receive an excellent education where he would go on to be a lawyer. After he finished his education, he spent time and really a decade or so of his life bedridden, almost dying from illness. And it wasn't until 1548 that he would regain his strength and flee France to join the work of the Reformation. He began his work first teaching in other parts, particularly in Switzerland, work that caught the eye of John Calvin. Eventually he would go on to work with Calvin there and serve in Geneva in 1558. Calvin once told, wrote of Theodore that he loved me more than a brother and honors me more than a father. The two were best friends and the two served one another well. It was after Calvin's death, death in 1564, that the ministry there in Geneva was carried on by Theodore. He was, if you will, the first Calvinist, though I don't think Theodore would have taken the title. Through his teachings and writings, Theodore gave us a greater understanding of of Calvin's own work, particularly his teachings through the Institutes. But it was Theodore's gift, uh, particularly his understanding of the Greek New Testament, that even today bears much upon us. Theodore was proficient in the Greek New Testament, much like many of the Reformers, and he wrote early on in 1560 uh, the annotations of the New Testament, which were used to create the Geneva Bible, uh, one of the very first English Bibles. His Greek text would also be used by the translators of the 1611 King James. So very much of your Bible, and even today in the ESV, bears the mark and work of a man named Theodore Beza, a man who is used by God to help to push forward, a man used by God to reclaim the glory of God in the church as he pointed people to the glory of God in salvation, that God alone was worthy of praise and glory. Well, over this past month, over the last five weeks, in the month of October, we have considered really the five solas of the Reformation. Um, particularly because this Tuesday, though it's Halloween on our calendar, it really is then the really the 500th anniversary of when Luther went there in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 sort of protests against the Church of Rome. There we see in these five solas, though if you were to call up a reformer and ask him uh, how would you articulate the Reformation, he would not in any way probably uh, have five solas. This is sort of what historians have helpfully summarized, and so it helps our thinking as well. First, sola scriptura, we considered that scripture alone uh, is our foundation for life and godliness. It was really the reclaiming of scripture uh, through Erasmus's New Testament, that helped to spark and fuel on the Reformation. When people then had an access to God's Word, and they could read it and understood it, stand it, excuse me, well, then people began to understand much more about what the Gospel was. The Reformation continued as we understand sola gratia. That is, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, or sola Christus, what we considered last week, that Christ alone, His atoning work, all that Christ has done in life and in godliness. 
that his perfect life and his substitutionary death is the means and merit of our salvation. Justification then is a gift to be received by faith, not some wage to be earned. And so we consider these four solas and and really the capstone, if you will, of all of the solas is the one we'll consider today. That if it is true that God has revealed in his word his plan of salvation, that if God has revealed the means to the ends through his word, if God was the one through Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, all of those solas, we understand that if all of those are true, then God alone deserves the credit. God alone is the one who deserves the glory. If we come to a wrong understanding of justification achieved by faith plus works, works of the church, works of sacraments, works of penance and the like, then we are robbing God of his rightful glory. Salvation becomes God plus us, God plus something we add to it. And therefore, if it's God plus us, then we share in that glory. That is, God doesn't get all the glory. We get some of it because we did something. We partake in the, our salvation. But what we understand through the gospel, I hope to show you this morning, is that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. That If we rightly understand those solas that we've considered this month, then we come to the inevitable in conclusion that God alone deserves glory. That God alone deserves the credit, the fame, and the praises. That our lives should be one of praising, worshiping, and devoting ourselves to God. So this morning we're going to turn back to Romans chapter 16. And before we do that, before we kind of jump back in, and and again if you're visiting with us, this is not how we typically go about preaching. Uh, Typically we do expositional verse by verse uh, so next Sunday, we're going to be coming back to 1 Peter. I'm excited uh, to get back to Peter, uh, to consider God's word there. So we'll be in 1 Peter next week in chapter 3. Uh, but today, we're going to be in Romans. And so but since we're kind of parachuting into this verse, uh, we need to set some context. It's helpful for us to understand, since we're coming to the very end of the book, what, what the heck has Paul said up to this point? What, what has he communicated? What, what is it that he has told the church in Rome? What is it? Well, the text before us is a nice summary of everything he said. And so even if I don't do a really sufficient job in summarizing the book, uh, well, the summary is really for us in our text this morning. But, but beginning in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has laid out a biblical case for man's depravity and God's righteous judgment of our sin. So in the first two chapters, Paul just made very clear that man uh, is sinful, we are rebellious from birth, and we deserve God's just wrath. And then in chapter 3, the, the, the door swings open of God's grace as we learn that God has provided justification. That is, being declared righteous before God. God has justified us through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what we considered in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Then in, in chapters 4 and 5, he, he really builds off of that verse where he sort of demonstrates from Old Testament Scripture that, look, even Old Testament saints were saved by faith And not by works. And he gives Abraham as an example of that. How Abraham was justified by faith. He continues his argument showing that one cannot be justified by works. Because we're slaves to sin. 
The sin nature has, has created a, such a, a scenario where we are unable to believe apart from some act of God. That's what we sang earlier in O oh Great God, that God must come and, and awaken our eyes and hearts. He does this through regeneration. And then in chapter 8, which is really the pinnacle of the letter, it's where we hit all the high points of theology is in chapter 8. Right? It's why it's everybody's favorite. It's why we love meditating on it. Because it is really the sweet fruit of the gospel. What we receive from the gospel. As it begins in chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Right? In light of the gospel, in light of everything I've set up to this point, therefore there's no condemnation. Then he continues in, in chapters 9 and 10, really thinking through excuse me, 9 through 11, where he shows that salvation is grounded in the ancient promises to Israel. That the gospel of Jesus is a continuation of what God did in the Old Testament. It is not disunified, but it is a unified story. And that God has hardened the hearts of Israel so that the gospel might go to the nations. Then in chapters 12 through 15, he lays out for us just how the gospel transforms everyday life. From picking up the kids at daycare to how we get along with our neighbors. All of the practical aspects of the gospel are just laid out. And then as he sort of just reflects back over the entire letter, a very lengthy letter, right? As he reflects back, what does he do? Well, he, he worships God. He's caused to, to give praise and glory. And so Paul reflects, and, and as he thinks about the gospel, the only proper response was to give God the glory. To give God the glory for everything he had done. Well, friends, let's look at that now in Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. Page 951 in the Pew Bibles, in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic, excuse me, prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What is Paul's point? What is the point that he seeks to accomplish through this passage? I think we could summarize it in this way. Since our redemption through Jesus Christ is God's work from beginning to end, He alone is worthy of glory. In other words, God alone gets the credit for our salvation. God alone gets the credit for our salvation. So the purpose of our time this morning is to really prove or demonstrate through this passage, and we'll pull, some, pull together a few others, but, but to really think through this passage before us and is consider that God alone deserves the glory of our redemption through Jesus Christ. That God alone. So this morning we're going to be thinking about glory. God's glory. But, but before we do, I, I just want to really set before you a, a helpful de definition as we think about God's glory. When you read your Bible and you, you come across the glory of God or to God be the glory or uh, the glory of God, we, we often articulate as the Shekinah glory of God and so on and so forth. There's many passages, if you were to uh, you know, get on a software and Google, I mean, there's hundreds of them, right? Uh, the glory of God. The Bible really talks about the glory of God in two ways. First, God's intrinsic glory, 
And then secondly, God's ascribed glory or our ascribing God glory. Uh, God's intrinsic glory is what we sang about early, earlier. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, God is holy. He's perfect. He is complete. He, he's lacking nothing. And so when we think about the glory of God, we're thinking particularly about the sum total of all of God's attributes. All of God is summed up in that phrase, the glory of God. So it's intrinsic to him. That is, we're not adding anything to God's glory. All right? And so the psalmist will often talk about ascribing God glory. Um, so thinking about uh, ascribing him glory. And so that's kind of what we're going to be thinking about mostly this morning. It would be wrong to say that when we ascribe God glory or give him glory, that we are somehow adding to God. Right? Because if we could add to God, particularly his glory, then God would be deficient in some way. Does that make sense? So, so, so to add to God's intrinsic glory would be to say that God is somehow deficient in glory. But as we understand, God is not. As Moses declares in Exodus 5.34, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still lives. God's glory is his perfect character. To add to that would to be to undermine God's character. And so this morning we want to think about how you and I have been invited into ascribing God's glory. That is, giving him credit. That is, we could think of glory as a word of fame. That we want to make God famous. We want to give God the credit for the work by telling others about him. Uh, we want to somehow display God's glory and share with others how great he is. As the psalmist in Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor. Of holiness. In other words, make God famous. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the heavens are, are crying out that God is the one who created. And as his creatures, our responsibility is to praise, worship, and be devoted to this God. And so this morning, I want to show you through this passage three reasons why uh, God alone deserves glory for your salvation. That God alone is the one who deserves. There's three reasons why, so three points. Um, first, because God alone is powerful to save you. Second, because God alone planned and purposed your salvation. And third and finally, because God alone produces your obedience. Number one, God alone is powerful to save. Uh, Paul begins his doxology by pointing to God. The praise that Paul offers is not towards himself, towards the church in Rome, to those Christians living there, or to some other person. Paul has in mind to praise him, right? He says, now to him, that is to God, now to God, to him. Our praise and glory is always outwardly oriented. It is always directed towards God. And as Paul reflected upon the work there in Rome 
God's work of saving Gentiles. Who, who would have guessed? Who would have, who would have thought that God would have invited sinful, Gentile, non-Jewish folks into a relationship? This is how Paul has thought all throughout as he reflected back in chapter 11 on the work of saving Gentiles. Paul concludes that section by saying, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways and how, ins- how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul begins by praising God for his ability to strengthen his people. Now I want you to understand, these Christians that Paul is writing to would have been faced with a myriad of temptations, of difficulties. Uh, Paul has really in mind two things. First, God's ability to strengthen, and secondly, their inability to have strength. He reminds them that God alone is the one that can strengthen. Strengthen them. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Amidst the prevailing polytheism that they would have faced, the worship of many gods, uh, amidst the, the, temp- the daily temptation, right? They're living in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, where Caesar would have regularly marched up and down the streets, and they would have heard praises to Caesar. Caesar is supreme Lord. Caesar is Lord. And they would have felt the pressure Right, So when they're sitting around the, uh, the water cooler at work, they would have faced the pressure to praise Caesar. They would have felt in their homes and in their workplaces, among their friends and families, the need to exalt the gods. They would have been tempted often to give up. Let's be true, these Christians would have faced jail, maybe even death because of their faith in Christ. And so Paul reminds them here at the end that, look, this is God's work from beginning to end. Just imagine for a moment, you've been invited into a relationship with God for which you will die for. And what do you need? You need encouragement, right? You need to be encouraged that God has got you. That God hasn't brought you into this relationship so that you will just be tossed to and fro by Satan. No, he has brought you into a relationship and he will sustain you. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it this way. To God who is able to set you on your feet as his own sons. God has brought you into a family and he is able to establish you and strengthen you. And what Paul uses here is language that he, be, that he began the letter with. Back in chapter 1 and verse 16, that, that really famous passage that many of us know, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles. The power of God, the, the dunamis of God, the power of God to say That is what he's talking about here, that God is powerful to save. That he who began a good work in you will sustain you to the end. And Paul says that he does this according to my gospel. Now, now I know you might be tripped up on that, be like thinking, what is this Paul's gospel now? I don't understand. I thought this was the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, Paul doesn't mean that he invented the gospel. Paul does not mean that he's the one that came up with it. It was his idea, his invention. No, the text makes clear, the context makes clear, that God was the inventor of it, right? And we'll consider that in a moment. Now, what Paul here is pointing to is the fact that he was the one given the message by God to share the gospel among the Gentiles. And so Paul proclaims a gospel not of him. Paul doesn't say, hey, I, I got you, I can save you, I, I, I can do this. No, rather he does it according to the gospel of Christ, right? That's what he says in the text in verse 25. According to the gospel, according to my gospel, and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. That is, the power of God is centered on the person of Christ. It would come not from within, but from outside, from Jesus Christ. God alone, then, is the source of salvation. God, is the, God alone is the one who will provide the, the necessary means to salvation. Therefore, when the strength to endure comes, Paul says, and it will come, God will strengthen you, God will give you the strength to endure when it comes. Do not point to yourself. Do not consider that you have somehow saved yourself or somehow given yourself strength. No, no. Paul says, no, it is to him. As he says back in Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. See, God sends his Spirit to give us strength, to remind us of the truths of Scripture, to encourage us. But God is the one. God is the one. As Paul writes often in, in Colossians chapter 1, he says it is God who gives him the strength. Paul's working hard. He's out there on the streets. He's working, evangelizing, building up the church. But it is God who works in him. It is God. Or as he says to the Ephesians, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To him who is able. God is able. Paul did not preach a message that was centered on others or centered on anything other than Jesus Christ on his atoning sacrifice for man's sins. For Paul, he preached the whole gospel, not just part of the gospel. I was reflecting earlier this week on, on how often uh, brothers and sisters who came before us we would be uh, often described as preaching hellfire and brimstone, right? They would preach to sort of, you know, hell is here and you can feel the flames. And, and, and right, that's good, that's okay, so long as you include the rest of the gospel, right? That's only part of the gospel. Right For Paul, he preached the whole gospel. He preached that, yes, you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that God has provided a sufficient Savior in Christ. God has not come to fix up your life, to make you look better. He hasn't come to, to give you a you know, new home or a new car and all those kind of worldly things. God doesn't come to you and say, you know, you've made a few mistakes. It's okay. You know, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll straighten your crooked life. No, as we've considered time and time again, God does not come to help us to a better life, but to give us a new life. A new life through Christ. And so God offers that through Jesus. God is amazing love. Sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death we deserve. As we considered last week, God, God sent His Son and Christ lived the perfect life, the life you and I should have lived. And He died the death we deserved in our place so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him would be saved. 
And you can know that today. You can be saved today, not through the church, not through the sacraments, not through baptism, but through His finished work alone. Jesus Christ died that you might have life. And this was the gospel that Paul preached. This is the one who deserves the glory and praise. In the gospel, we are promised enduring strength. We are promised that God will not only give us faith, but faith that will endure. Saving faith is enduring faith. So this morning you might be wondering, you know, I see Christians a lot. They, they claim to follow Christ, but they seem to fall away. What, what, what do we make of those? Well, friend, I just want to encourage you this morning that this passage makes clear that those who have saving faith endure to the end. So, friend, I invite you to trust this promise today. Friend, this is a promise to claim. He is able to strengthen you. Do not look for strength within. Do not, do not find strength in yourself or in your own life. Or you will find none. Look to Christ and to Christ alone. And there you will find strength. There you will find His Spirit ready at hand. Do not look to some event in your life, some spiritual or religious event, but look to Christ for assurance. Look to Him alone. God alone is worthy of praise, glory, and devotion because He alone can save. So Paul continues, number two, God alone planned and purposed your salvation. God alone planned and purposed your salvation. Why is it that God alone gets the glory? Because He alone was the one who planned and the one who purposed your salvation. Look with me in verse 25 again. He says, according to the revelation, or excuse me, uh, yeah, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. God planned the means of your salvation from beginning to end. And as Paul continues his doxology this morning, we, we see that he is reminding his readers that God is the source of salvation. That, that is, that the gospel was hidden from humanity. Notice what he says. He says, the revelation of the mystery, that is the gospel, the mystery he talked about earlier in chapter 11 was that the gospel came to Gentiles. No one have, would have thought that. No one would have sat around a table and came up with that. Uh, the elders in Israel would not have, have sat down and said, yeah, let's, let's take the message of, the, of salvation to the Gentiles. The question then becomes, who kept it secret? Who hid it? Was it man? Was it the Pharisees? Was it the, the Sadducees? Was it the religious leaders there in Jerusalem? Who hid the gospel from the rest of humanity? I think the text makes clear. God was the one who hid it. We see that implied in verse 26 when we see that God was the one who commanded it to be revealed. God was the one who hid the gospel and God was the one who revealed the gospel. And so, friend, this morning, I wonder, you're being confronted with the nature of God this morning, that God would hide the gospel from some and reveal it to others. This is what Paul says. But God hid the gospel and in his perfect timing revealed it. In his perfect way and in his perfect 
timing. God is the architect of salvation. No one could be saved apart from God's revelation. That's what we considered some four weeks ago in Sola Scriptura. God alone reveals His will through His Word. Now sure, there were clues to the plan. So when God told Abraham that He would bless the nations, that that through his seed uh, there would be a blessing... Clearly there was hints, or, or when we go to the psalmist and we see the psalmist regularly saying that, that Israel will bless the nations. But friends, none of these clues made sense until Jesus came. In Christ, God revealed this mysterious plan. God displayed His plan through Christ. He hid it and He disclosed it. He is the one who... Hid it. And so we see that God alone is the one who created the plan and the one who alone could hide the plan. It follows then if God is the one who revealed, if God was the one who hid it and then revealed it, then God is the author, author and architect. This is what Paul is pointing towards and why he is saying that God alone deserves the glory. Friends, no one would have figured this out. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. That the gospel is foolishness to the world. No one is is coming up with this on their own. But it is from God's own lips. It is God's own plan. From eternity past, God has eternally purposed your salvation. This is what Paul goes on to say in verse 26. But God has now discovered. But now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Notice what he says, according to the commands of God. God commanded this. Not Paul, not the apostles, not Moses, not anyone but God. All of this is God's. Again, God was the one who planned and purposed this. We notice here in the passage that he points to God as as the eternal God, a, a reminder, I think, that, that these plans are hid with God in eternity past. As Paul regularly argues, or similarly argues in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1 and verse 11, Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who calls, who works, excuse me, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. You see, salvation was orchestrated by God. It was brought about and planned and purposed by God, so that God alone would receive the glory. He has chosen a people from all of humanity and called them. This is what God has done. It is God's work from beginning to end. He has created a people for his own glory. Humanity has not come to God seeking a relationship with him. Nowhere in the Bible do we see man seeking God. But regularly we see God seeking man. God reaching out. God seeking by his own mercy to redeem and to reconcile himself to them. And this is why the gospel is a free gift, not to be earned. It is not a wage to be earned, but a gift to be received through faith in Christ. 
God alone has revealed salvation. And God alone has purposed it. To them, Paul says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God hid the gospel so that he could display it in a glorious way so that you and I could be saved, not so that we would get glory, so that he would receive glory. So what does all this mean? How does that help us understand what we're thinking about this morning? Friend, if God is the author and perfecter of your faith, if God is the one who began a good work in you and will carry it to completion, then it really just naturally follows that God alone deserves the glory. That God alone gets the credits. God alone. Not us, not an evangelist, uh, not the church, and especially not the Pope gets the credit for our salvation. God alone. God alone is worthy of praise, glory, and devotion because He alone has designed the means to the ends. He is the one who has planned and purposed your redemption. So this leads us to our final point. Number three, God alone, God alone produces your obedience. In the false doctrine, in the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, our works cooperate with God to bring about salvation. But here in our text before us, we see that God is the one who brings about obedience, not man. But God is the one who produces. And so we're reminded again, and really a theme that stretches throughout the book of Romans, that works are the fruit of not the root of the gospel. That good works are the fruit of the gospel, the fruit that God is bearing out in our life. They're the result of our new life. They are not the means or the merit of new life. So Paul continues in his doxology here by saying to bring about, that is, according to the command of God. What, what is the purpose of redemption? What is the purpose of the gospel? What is the purpose of this plan and mystery? To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. Paul earlier in Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Now you always thought that you were the one who believed. That you were the one who mustered up the, you know, the strength there, the nervous strength to walk an aisle or to raise a hand or to pray a prayer. Friends, we are reminded that faith is not our own. That faith is a gift given by God. And that faith is given to us in the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when we hear the gospel, along with the gospel comes the ability to believe by the power of the Spirit. We're reminded that salvation is not by works. It is not by our obedience that therefore produces faith. But rather salvation produces obedient faith. Here Paul says that God saves so that we might have faith. So that we might have faith. 
And there's a promise in this passage that we understand that what God is doing is bringing about obedience. That God is the one who's sanctifying sinners and making them holy. It is God's work. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. As Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Responsibility. But he doesn't stop there, does he? For it is he who works in you, right? It's God who's at work in you. Work hard, sanctify, work, put to death the deeds of the flesh. But remember, it's God who's doing all the work. Work hard by the power of God. So we understand that, yes, we have a responsibility to believe. So, so I'm not saying this morning that, that you just sort of passively become a Christian. That you somehow just sort of like, one day you wake up, you become a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he is saying is that God has orchestrated your salvation from beginning to end so that your, your relationship with him is based not in you, but in him. So that at the end of the day, as you reflect on the gospel, you reflect on your salvation, there is no way, no way, if you rightly understand the gospel, that you can conclude that you participated in your own salvation. God shares his glory with no one. I, I think I've seen that evident just, just practically in my life that God always does things in such a way so that he gets the credit. So that he gets the glory. God never shares his throne with anyone. So God alone gets the glory. Friends, this is true of every aspect of life. God does what he does for his own glory. Even your own salvation wasn't just to save you, but to give God glory. This point, uh, the passage is, is not to be construed as just thinking that, that somehow we are alienated from God, but that rather we have a relationship with God through Christ. We need to understand that God not only gets the glory, but that he did it for that purpose. This is how Paul concludes in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. It's to God only, right? And only God. For only God is wise. For only God is God. In essence, Paul is saying in a polemical way, God and God alone gets the glory. God, God alone. So as we consider our great God and his great salvation, our hearts are warmed and moved to worship God, to praise him. Worship is a natural reflection and response to the gospel. And so how can we give God glory for our salvation? I think first, just by reminding ourselves that all things are done for the glory of God. God does what he does for his own glory. From beginning to end. He is not worried about you and getting credit. He's not thinking, man, I really hope I can make a name for, for you. He's not. What he is concerned about is you maximizing his own glory. 
This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether, whether you eat or drink or really whatever you're doing, do all to the glory of God. So every aspect of life, every part of creation is meant to glorify God in Christ. Therefore, the life we now have, we live to God's glory alone. God has saved us so that we might bring him glory. So from washing the dishes to mowing the lawn, from writing a research paper to filing papers at work, from the ordinary and to the, and mundane to the spectacular and wonderful. All things are done for God's glory alone. Friends, we should understand that every part of our life, everything, from putting on our clothes to caring for our children and grandchildren to, to everything, I mean, I mean, Paul says everything is to God's glory. As Paul reflected on his own salvation in 1 Timothy, he said this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. And then he concludes with this doxology, To the king of ages, immortal, immortal invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes as he reflected on the gospel and his own salvation that God alone was the rightful recipient of glory. But Paul never shared the glory with God. Another way that we can give glory with God, to God is by pointing others to him and not ourselves. Look, we perk up when people come to us for help. We're like, yeah, finally somebody thinks I'm important. Someone thinks I'm special. They're actually coming to me for, for help with life and, and with growing in godliness. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Right? We take every opportunity to gain attention for ourselves. No reason why Facebook and Twitter and the like are so popular. Because we love self-glory. We love people to like our stuff and retweet us and all the, all the other things. Because we like the attention so when people seek our help, we get excited, our hearts feel warmed. And the reason is because our sinful nature desires for self-acclamation. We think we don't need God. But friends, one of the ways that you can glorify God in your life is by pointing others regularly to Him. And that's why I regularly pray that our conversations are filled with Scripture. You see, when, you come, when people are coming to you and you're just like the old sage that has all the good advice... And you're never pointing people to Scripture. You're never saying, well, well consider what, what God says here. Consider what God... You know that you're depending on you and your wisdom and not God's. You're receiving glory. But friends, if you're pushing back on folks' Scripture and you say, hey, you know, consider what God you know, says here and, and how that applies here. Let's think through that. You see, God is getting the glory. God is, is not sharing glory with you, but you are pointing others to Him. You're not telling people, I've got you, I can save you, I can help you in your life, I can figure this out, I can fix your problems. You're saying, no, um, I'm not the one that can fix your problems, but I know the one who can. And let me point you to him. We see also that we can give glory to God alone by fighting the temptation to find rest in this world. Friends, there are many ways that we can find rest in this world. 
one way that you can glory in your Redeemer is by being satisfied in Him. Through material comforts, financial peace, marital and family successes, occupational and educational attainments, we can find comfort, rest, and security, even satisfaction in this world. Friends, we must resist this and rest in God alone through Christ alone. Find your satisfaction in God alone. Find your identity in Him. This is what the, the, West, the, the elders there at the Westminster Confession of Faith wrote in that first question. Right? That, that, that sort of famous, how do we glorify God or what is it, how do we do that? That is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we are to be about, to glorify God and find satisfaction in Him. This is what John Piper has helpfully said. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified when you are satisfied in Him. When you, when you say, you know what, God is my all and all. There is nothing else I need but Him. The Bible also tells us that we glorify God by being a part of a local congregation. By being a part of a local church, God's glory is displayed. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3. That God has, has united together Christians, not in individual little groups, but in one united church so that he might display the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is displayed when we unite together in love and sacrifice for one another. And it is tarnished and it is destroyed when we are disunified. It's when the church is unified under the glory of Christ that we see the gospel shine through our personal relationships and covenantal commitment to love, serve, and give our lives to one another in sacrifice. When we do this, the world looks on and says, this is not normal. Look, it's normal to hang out with people that look like you. That's pretty normal. The world is not surprised when only Ravens fans get together or when only white people hang out together. God's not like, Woo, you know, the world's not like, wow, that's, so, that's amazing. But it is amazing when you have diversity of race, socioeconomic status, of background, upbringing, all of those kind of things. And we come in and we unite together to love, serve people who are not like us who don't think like us, who don't vote like us, and the rest. God received glory. There's a great display of God's glory. And so, friend, I just invite you to, to remind yourself of that truth, that covenant commitment in a local church as a member of a body of Christ is a means to display God's glory. This is what Calvin rightly said, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. But listen, but the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most visible part of it. And the nearer the approaches are that God makes to us, the more intimate and condescending the communication of his benefits, the more attentive are we called to consider them. So he's saying that if you destroy the local church, you destroy God's visible display of glory among the nations. And so that local church is a vital part of God's glory displayed among the nations. God will not share his throne with you. He will not share it with any other. 
And so this morning, I, I just asked this simple question. How are you robbing God of his glory? How are you robbing God of glory in your salvation? Good works are not the root of salvation, but the fruit of new life. The famous German musician and composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, though he arrived some 200 years after Martin Luther, the Reformation forever changed him. His work was forever shaped and informed by Luther's writings and by his teachings. Bach once wrote, The final aim and reason of all music is nothing other than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the Spirit. And so, Bach would often sign on every one of his religious hymns or secular works, S.D.G., Solo Deo Glory. Bach understood that all of his work, and many would argue he is the greatest of them all, but Bach would never have said he was great. But he regularly pointed to God's greatness, that God alone was the one who secured his salvation, that God was the one who deserves the glory. And so now to him who is only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your grace today, and we pray that you would be glorified in us. The Lord, through our obedient faith, through our life lived, it would be for your glory and your glory alone. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that are struggling to find satisfaction in Christ. Perhaps they have found rest in other things in this world, comforts and enjoyments, and have done it all apart from you. They have not seen that those enjoyments were meant to bring you glory, not themselves. And so we pray you would awaken our eyes. See where we have turned salvation into works and they robbed you of your glory. Lord, may we rest assured today that you have saved us, that our salvation was not by man's invention or man's will, but by the will of an eternal God, by your will and your will alone, you have saved us. For your glory and for our eternal good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.